0: This sermon was recorded at Christ Church Overland Park, a congregation that seeks to be a people fully alive in God's kingdom. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John with Him, and led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, listen to him suddenly when they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except jesus as they were coming down the mountain jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead the gospel of the lord praise to you lord christ
1: well good morning Today is the final Sunday after the Epiphany, it's not Super Bowl Sunday, it's the final Sunday after the Epiphany, when Jesus is revealed to the world as Lord and King. So that's what's going on liturgically in this season, Jesus is being revealed. And that began with the visit of the three wise men, and then it just progresses from there. And so it makes sense, as we prepare to transition into the season of Lent, that we deal with this passage about the transfiguration, when Jesus is revealed, He's revealed in His divine glory to His closest followers. And so I want to engage with this story, uh, three simple headings, how did we get here to this point in the story, and then up the mountain, down the mountain. So how did we get here, up the mountain, down the mountain? So how did we get here? One of the the challenges of preaching the appointed uh, lectionary passages is oftentimes the passage is just taken out of its context and put, you know, like, like the Transfiguration reading this week. Well, there's a whole story that leads up to it, but we haven't covered that story. So... That's part of what I want to explain here, because it's essential to really understand what's going on in this transfiguration passage. But immediately after Jesus' baptism, He he called His disciples, and they followed Him. They, They left everything. They left their wives, their children, their occupations. They left everything behind and followed Him. And certainly, from the very beginning, they had messianic expectations about Jesus. I mean, they wouldn't leave everything behind if they didn't. But still, things were not completely clear. They followed Jesus, they heard Him preach, they saw Him perform unbelievable miracles, healing every kind of disease and ailment, casting out demons, uh, calming the Sea of Galilee, Uh, feeding thousands with almost no food, even raising the dead, Jairus' daughter. But then we come to this pivotal point in the story. It's in Mark chapter 8, the chapter just prior to the transfiguration. And this is a a story that you have to know to really know, because these two things are linked together. These two stories are told together for a purpose. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus, you know, he's been growing in notoriety and influence from all the things he's done. And so he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they're like, Well, you're a prophet, you're Elijah. And then Jesus asked the disciples, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter provides his famous response, you are the Messiah. You know, Peter got it right. He got it right, and it's a great moment. Their their suspicions are confirmed about who Jesus is. They they haven't left everything behind for no reason. Um, You know, he was the one. And it had to be a moment where they felt a great sense of joy and excitement. It's like they invested everything in this messianic lottery ticket uh, to discover that they had the winning numbers. You know, Jesus was not the only one who ever claimed to be the Messiah. There were others and they had followers. But the followers' hopes were always dashed because the Roman government had a very effective way of dealing with messiahs. They killed them, and that was the end of that. And so, you know, betting everything on a messiah was really risky. It was really risky. And you know, I mean, these disciples, you know, we we read of them almost like they're superhero kind of people, but these were real people there had to be many occasions, you know, where they wondered among themselves, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? What have we done? You know, is this going to end the way that it's ended for all these other messiahs? But in that particular moment, when Peter has the right answer, You know, that was a great moment. And they had to think, okay, this is it. He really is the one. He's going to overthrow these Romans and establish his kingdom. But then almost immediately, well, literally immediately after this exchange where Peter gets the right answer and they feel such a sense of relief and joy, Jesus said the most shocking, horrifying thing they could possibly imagine. Jesus completely dashed their hopes as soon as he lifted them. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Peter, you know, he speaks, but he's speaking on behalf of all of them. Like, no, no, that's not the way this story goes. Not this time. We have not given up everything to have this end with a dead Messiah. And I'm sure once they heard that, they just didn't hear anything else. Because Jesus, whenever he talked about his death, he always talked about rising again. But that just didn't compute, I don't think. Continuing in Mark chapter 8, verse 32 and 33, it says, Jesus spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus continued, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so Jesus he immediately, once he confirmed, yes, I am the Messiah, he immediately let them know in no uncertain terms that this Messiah, quite strangely, was going to go to his death on purpose. Like that's what he was going to do on purpose. And if they wanted to follow him, it meant that they were going to go there as well. They had to be thinking, we have made the biggest mistake of our lives. This, (laughs) you know, what in the world have we done? That's where we pick up with the transfiguration. So it says, after six days. So for six days, Jesus lets them sit with this. And you can imagine those conversations going on for six days. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good to be here. So we know how they got there. Then Jesus leads them up the mountain. Peter think that, people think that Peter was being impetuous, you know, when he says it's good for us to be here. And that's because Peter typically was impetuous. But I kind of imagined that Peter said this as a sigh of relief, like, oh. Thank goodness. It's good for us to be here and to see this. You know, you really are the one. This had all the markings of a theophany, a a, a visible manifestation of God. You know, in the Old Testament, in Daniel, the prophet Daniel, he has this, what became this famous vision And it became known, even in the Old Testament times, that this vision was a prophetic vision about the Messiah. It says this in chapter 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He, this son of man figure, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is God language. It's a human figure a son of man, but he comes with clouds. And we know the significance of clouds in the Old Testament. As the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, they were led by a cloud during the day, a pillar of cloud. And that, in that pillar of cloud was God's presence. This son of man is worshipped by everyone. What's the number one commandment? You shall have no other gods but me. You worship God alone. Well, he's worshiped by everyone. He has glory, sovereign power and everlasting dominion, an indestructible kingdom. Daniel's vision is a vision and he didn't have all the theological pieces of the puzzle put together. But this is a vision of the incarnation. This is a vision of God in flesh. Now, after having their hopes dashed, now they see Jesus, who by the way, calls himself the son of man, transfigured into his heavenly glory in this intense light emanating from him not on him, but from him. The cloud of God's presence was there. Two great heroes of the faith were there, Moses and Elijah, both of whom point to the Messiah's work. You have Elijah who was taken up into heaven, and they believe that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come as a forerunner to prepare the way. And then Moses led the people of Israel uh, out of slavery into the promised land, all of which just points to Jesus and the deeper deliverance that he has accomplished for us. So they were there in support of Jesus And the voice from heaven who referred to his son, the son of man. Jesus is the one in Daniel's vision, the one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And these three disciples are seeing it. They are seeing him in that way right in front of them. Now, after the epiphany, when the wise men visit, we go all the way back to the beginning of the story, we read about Jesus' baptism and what happens at the baptism. We hear this same heavenly voice. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Well, now, now that the cross is in view... God the Father gave Jesus and these three disciples another reaffirming moment where once again they hear this voice. This is my son whom I love. So this emotional roller coaster the disciples have been on continues. You know, their their hopes are elevated then immediately dashed. And now three of them see this amazing vision Notice the rest of what Peter says here. Let us put up three shelters. And that word shelter is the same word for tabernacle in the Old Testament. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's motivation is not mentioned here except that he just didn't know what to say because he was terrified, as we all would be. But... As you read the whole story and know how did we get here, you know, it's not not hard to imagine that Peter's desire here, maybe even subconsciously, is just another attempt to resist the suffering mission that Jesus has told them about. you know hey let's build some shelters let's stay here for a while let's just forget all this talk about going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross that doesn't sound very appealing let's just stay here now it's it's much more subtle than no you're not going to do that (laughs) but it has the same effect The reality is the disciples just simply could not get their heads around this suffering mission the self-sacrificing nature of jesus's ministry but the voice from heaven weighed in it's while peter was still speaking the voice from heaven interrupts him this is my son whom i love listen to him now that meant more than just hear what he's saying doesn't it like that listen to him is said in the same way that dads say it I remember you ever remember those like lectures you get from your dad where he asks you questions and he answers them all for you uh. Like, that's what Charlie did. It was like, son, were you listening? No, you weren't listening. (laughs) It obviously means, hear me and obey. That's what listen to him means. So the transfiguration, it wasn't simply a reaffirmation for these disciples about who Jesus is. It was also a call to them to listen to him. Stop resisting what he's going to do. Get on board and follow him. Follow him obediently, even to your own deaths. So Jesus led them up the mountain, but then he led them down, coming down the mountain. You know, Wednesday begins the season of Lent. Much of the city will be celebrating a Super Bowl victory. We will be here. And you know what? This is more important. Wednesday begins the season of Lent, a season where we journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, where he dies a criminal's death and is resurrected on the third day. It's a season, as the prayer book says, marked by self-examination and repentance, prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. And I think we can be tempted to react like Peter hey, can't we just stay here for a little while longer? Do we really have to go into a season where it begins by you telling me that I'm going to die? Like, that's how, that's how the whole season begins. We're reminded that we're going to die. Sounds like fun, right? Right? it's a season where we strip the knave bare we face our mortality we confess our sins we deny ourselves i mean can't we just stay here a little while longer or maybe even better is there some way we can just get from here to easter and kind of skip you know a shortcut a shortcut straight to the season of celebration and resurrection and feasting? and Well, the answer is obviously no, because that's just not how life is, even though a lot of people think that it's supposed to be. Life is just supposed to be awesome all the time, and only good things happen, and we just know that's not true. Like, it's, it's a lie. It's not true. You know? Life isn't only a season of of feasting and fulfillment. It has those moments for sure, those seasons for sure. But it's also a season of fasting and self-denial. That's true of the Christian journey. There's no shortcuts here. There's no way to Christ-likeness without embracing Lent and the spirit of Lent as well as embracing celebratory seasons and the spirit behind them like Christmas and Easter. We need both the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. We need both of those things. There are no shortcuts. Jesus went to Jerusalem and his loving invitation is, hey, come follow me. Come go where I'm going. Pick up your crosses and follow me. He promises that if we follow Him on this path of self-denial, this path of sacrificial love, that He will lead us to the power of the resurrected life. Out of death comes life. Paradoxically, life and death at work at the same time. This is what Paul says. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. Life and death at the same time. And so as a way to live into that reality, we begin this season of Lent on Wednesday. We're not going to build shelters and stay here. On Wednesday, we set our faces to go to Jerusalem. And I look forward to seeing you here.